The rear courtyard of the home is lit by flickering golden lamplight. The table holds three, at the center and the two far ends. The four corners of the courtyard each have an oil lamp set atop a tall stake. The combination of these seven lamps atop the table and at the courtyard's four corners creates a great deal of warm, comfortable light. Its gold moves and dances with the subtle swaying of the evening's westerly breeze. Everyone around the table is feeling relaxed and at peace. The conversation has been general, for the most part. Current events, politics, local gossip. Which is somewhat surprising, given the assembled group. Here they are. At the table's one head, Jesus from Nazareth, the teacher from the northern upcountry, enjoying a glass of local vintage that comes highly recommended. Next to him, and circled around and down both sides of the long outdoor table, are the twelve men who've been his disciples for the last three years. Ringing the courtyard, and in the custom of the country totally uninvited, are perhaps fifty to seventy-five people who are itinerant followers of his, religious leaders, some of whom are really enemies, and many of them, just curious neighbors who wondered at all the noise back there in the courtyard. Just finishing serving the final dish still on her feet, and one of Jesus' closest friends, somewhat scandalously given her gender, is Martha of Bethany, whose house this is. And at the other end sits the brother of that woman, a man by the name of Lazarus, who, 72 hours earlier, was dead, and had been so for four days. This formerly dead man is presently holding up his cup, toasting his resurrector, who likewise raises his cup, and they smile at each other along the length of the long table. The other sister of this Lazarus, Mary, has been missing from the table for some minutes. Oh, but wait, here she comes now. She comes out of the house, entering that golden lamplight of the open air of the courtyard. She carries her head bowed low. In her hands, she carries a purple glasswork jar. The conversation ceases as she crosses across the tile of the courtyard. There is something about her manner that hushes the general talk around the table. Every eye is now firmly upon her. She passes down the right-hand side of the table, stopping at the left-hand side of Jesus' place at its head. There, she falls to her knees. The assemblage of watchers listens to the sound of her breathing, slow and steady, as she, with both hands, breaks the sealed neck of the jar. The smell of the perfume is instantly overpowering. It rises out of the neck of the jar like an imprisoned spirit suddenly set free, and now everyone in the courtyard feels himself as if possessed by the aroma. With one flick of the wrist, she has poured out all of its contents upon the feet of Jesus. The oiliness of the perfume runs down his lower legs and drips from his feet to the tile work. Mary begins to wipe the perfume and his feet with her hair. She takes the length of it in both hands and, like a long horsehair brush, begins to stroke along the length of his feet until the perfume is only there in scent. 
the crowd around her, is thinking of the scandalousness of this gesture. Mary is just thinking of the gloriousness of being alive, present in his time. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus of Bethany in Judea. They show us what are the only three proper responses to the living life of Jesus. To worship him with our everything, as does Mary. To serve everyone in his name, as does her sister Martha. To be alive, truly, wondrously, supernaturally alive on his behalf, as does Lazarus for the rest of his life. The religious leaders scoff at all this, returning to Jerusalem. They are only too happy to report this evening's disgraceful scene out in the courtyard of the home of those sisters and that brother of theirs. The next day, Jesus and his friends were approaching Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage and Bethany on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. They followed the narrow road that skirts the midsection of the Olive Mount. Above, to their right, was a garden owned by a friend of his. It was called Gethsemane. Below them was the panorama of the whole city. The walls and ramparts in their golden grayish stone, uh, the multicolored peaks and valleys of the rooftop tiles, the rising and falling of citywide sounds of commerce, of life. And at the center of it all, on the near eastern side, closest toward him, the Temple of Herod, which was the name by which he called it. It gleamed and glowed with a pride that had always bothered him. Standing there, looking down upon this scene, he then sent off two of his disciples with these instructions. Go into the village just ahead of you, and as soon as you enter it, you will find a tethered colt on which no one has yet ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back immediately. These two heard these words, looked at each other, and shrugged. And they went off, following the narrow trail toward that group of houses below, and, just like he'd said, found the colt tethered by a doorway outside in the open street. They smiled at each other when they saw it just standing there. And, as he'd instructed, they untied it. Now some of the bystanders did say, What are you doing untying this colt? But they made the reply Jesus told them to make, and the men raised no objection. So they brought the colt to Jesus, reversing their journey back up the Mount of Olives, and they found him resting in the shade of one of the tall trees. He stood to his feet to greet them as they came up. He smiled at the snorting, snuffing sounds from the colt. He reached out and stroked it on its muzzle. His disciples all were rising to their feet along with him. Suddenly, everything felt inexplicably momentous. A feeling had risen in the air. And they began throwing their coats on the back of the colt, and he took his seat upon it. He threw his legs off to one side with the seeming ease of a prince or a king. The colt, with Jesus atop, the disciples flanking him on both sides, begins to follow the trail downward, down toward Jerusalem. 
In Jerusalem, strange things are occurring. People have woken in the night, having dreamt of the face of a conquering king coming towards them. They have told their families of this auspice over breakfast. Others awoke with a strange, unidentifiable feeling of something. They are wandering through this morning in a sort of daze. Children have been running around through the streets, shouting, He is coming! And no one seems to know how they know this, why they shout this. Businesses are slow to open. The market squares are strangely empty. The whole of Jerusalem is shuffling dreamlike out into the streets. A premonition is upon them collectively. Something is preparing to be happening. And here he comes, riding slowly downward toward the eastern gate of the city, the sunlight gaining height at his back. The air is clear today. Just a trace of breeze is felt on everyone's faces, his and the disciples, and the pace of all is comfortable. They are coming now toward the open gate. The gate is open. The scene on the other side is simply astounding. Enormous crowds, men, women, and children, hemming the whole of the street. The street itself, empty of all traffic. An unearthly hush of expectation hanging over all. Almost a sense of everyone holding their breath, waiting. The colt, with Jesus atop, the disciples flanking him on both sides, breaches the threshold of the city, and the city altogether erupts. The sound of myriad, myriad voices explodes, almost as if with relief, a shockwave of sound strikes Jesus, the colt, the disciples. The colt starts and almost bucks. Jesus rests his hand upon its neck to calm it. They continue their processional down the crowd-lined street. The chaos only grows around them. Many of the people spread out their coats in his path as he rode along. They didn't care that these coats would be ruined by the dust and dung and dirt. The street became a colorful rainbow road, a heavenly alleyway down the middle of the roaring crowds. Others put down straw, which they had cut from the fields. Others sawed off branches of palms and waved them, fan-like shouting. The whole crowd, both those who were in front and those who were behind Jesus, shouted, God save him! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! God bless the coming kingdom of our father David! God save him from on high! Serene, Jesus takes it all in. His eyes move from right to left slowly. A casual smile is on his lips. He is remembering from the vantage of his throne a similar scene. Of Prince Solomon on the mule of his father, the aged King David, riding from the city of David into the valley of Kidron, through which he himself just passed. Of the presence there of Nathan the prophet, Zadok the priest. Of the blowing of the horns, the anointing of the oil, 
the shouts and similar tumult as the new king, Solomon the Great, took his seat on the throne. Long live King Solomon, the people shouted, the Godhead watching in from the throne room of heaven, Jesus himself watching. He remembers this like it was yesterday. To him, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, Herod's temple, as he called it, and looked round on all that was going on. It was the usual hustle and bustle and needless commerce of the religious spirited. He watched it all with a steady eye. And then, since it was already late in the day, he went out to Bethany with the twelve and had dinner for the last time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The sun set on that last Sunday before Passover. Passover.